Let's get underway by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word. We pray, Lord, that you might grant us minds to understand it by your spirit, that we might be transformed and indeed, Lord, liberated by your good gospel in Jesus Christ. Amen. Because, friends, that's what I pray will happen today. You experience, maybe for the first time, but at least you be you experience it in terms of being reminded, liberation. I want you to feel real liberation today from God's words. I believe that that is what God intends us to get from this particular passage that we're looking at in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 5 and 6. Uh, so it'd be great to get open up a Bible. Uh, and you might like to take a few notes on the outline that's there because uh, that will probably help you as we go along. Okay. Well, for just a few dollars, for a few dollars, you can buy Jesus in a box. There. For a few dollars, you can buy Jesus in a box. Fascinating if you uh, read the little writing there on this box. Uh, according to this box, Jesus is a token hazard. <laughs> Which is quite interesting when you think about the New Testament Gospels because for the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws and the scribes, in, in fact, Jesus was a bit of a token hazard. He really made them gag, actually. Uh, but also, according to a little writing on this box, uh, Jesus is not suitable for children under the age of three. <laughs> Which I think plainly from the New Testament Gospels is not true. Jesus is for all people. But actually that's what happens when you put Jesus in a box. You get a cut down Jesus. You get an attenuated Jesus. A Jesus who is only a poor looking replica of the real person. And there's the tragic thing is, most of us don't even need to spend a few dollars to put Jesus in a box. Because we manage very successfully to put him in a box all by ourselves. Uh, even Christians do this. Jesus becomes the lever that I pull when I need divine forgiveness. Jesus is God's solution back there, thousands of years ago, to my need for forgiveness today. But if I ask you, how does that news affect you today? How does it actually transform your life this afternoon? You might be a bit stumped. And well, that's probably because we've put Jesus in a box. Some sort of box marks God's forgiveness mechanism. Now, I hope you wouldn't be so crude as to label Jesus as a mechanism. But maybe you get the point. We put Jesus into a box. A box that is the particular solution to a particular problem. But I want to say to you today, from God's word, when it comes to Jesus dealing even just with the problem of sin, we fall into this trap of boxing Jesus. So we know that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the sins of the whole world. We just read that last week in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. But what Jesus achieves through his sacrifice of himself for our sins is much, much more than just forgiveness. As beautiful as forgiveness is. And that's what we're going to look at today. We want to understand how Jesus is more than just sin sacrifice. I want you to grasp the wider scope of Jesus dealing with sin through his death and indeed to, to know liberation through it. So we're going to do it by looking at Romans chapter 5 and 6. 
particularly saying in verses 5 to verse 12. And uh, what draws these, these sections together in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that Paul is talking about sin, he's talking about what Jesus has done about sin, and he's talking about how that impacts upon you and me. So, uh, first heading here on the outline. Jesus abounds over sin's source. Uh, two, two points to note here. Uh, first one is this. Jesus is, is like Adam. Jesus is like Adam. Jesus' actions have a massive flow-on effect for all of humanity. You've got your Bible there, let's have a look. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to jump in at verse 18 and 19. Verse 18. Consequently, writes Paul, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Now, when we're jumping in here the second half of chapter 5, I say this is heavy stuff. This is, Paul is, is saying profound things that require you to actually think. Right? This is not sort of hundreds and thousands of theology and you just sprinkle it on and it's all good. This is actually, you've got to get into it and you've got to wrestle with it, you've got to understand it, and when you understand it, you are amazed. Okay? So let's actually, how are you going to get into complex things like this? Well, you might think this is lame, I think this is fantastic, I like to draw the Bible. Right? Now, I've not yet drawn every verse in the Bible, that would take me a long time, but these two verses are really helpful if you draw them. What is Paul saying here? What's Paul saying in these particular verses? Well, it's got a comparison, right? I can tell it's a comparison because he says there, uh, just as, twice, in fact. Just as Adam, so also Jesus. What do we want? Well, we've got Adam. They didn't have scissors in the car for these. So he had plenty of hair. And he had a big A on his chest. Nobody wasn't wearing clothes. Okay. <laughs> you have Adam, and you have Jesus. Okay. Wait. Adam, what do we want to make verses from Adam? Okay, let's look. Verse 18. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. One trespass, he's talking about Adam, he's talking about the Garden of Eden. One trespass, one crossing of the boundary, that's what trespass means. He's talking about the fact that God and the Garden of Eden have said they can eat of any tree that they like, it's all been provided for, for their blessing, but the one tree they were not to eat, for their own good, was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet that is, of course, the one tree that Adam and Eve insisted that they must eat from. They crossed the line. They, it was one trespass. And what he says is, from one trespass, condemnation came to all people. So here's the world. <laughs> condemnation. Came to all. Okay? Verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all. What's the righteous act? He's talking about Jesus here. What's Jesus' righteous act? 
Wasn't Jesus whole life righteous? Yes, of course, he's without sin. Well, he's talking here in the context of chapter 3, all the way through to chapter 5, he's talking about Jesus' death. Jesus' one righteous act is his death. Just as Adam is in one act of disobedience or unrighteousness, is mirrored by Jesus' one act of righteousness, his obedience even to death. And yet that brings, for all people, justification and life. You see, he's setting up a pattern, just as one, so as the other. Uh, and then we can add a little bit to the diagram from verse 19. So just as through the disobedience of the one man, so the trespass, so it's an act of disobedience, of the one man, the many were made sinners, so as a result of Adam's disobedience, the whole world, all of humanity, becomes sinners. Well, that doesn't sound very fair. How is it just because Adam did one thing, I become a sinner? Well, actually, I've jumped into the middle of Paul's little section here on chapter 5. If you go back to verse 12, which is where Paul started the section, he gets halfway through a sentence and then stops. He gets distracted by an imaginary sort of um, interjection, which he then sort of goes on a sort of a sideline sort of answer. He gets back on track and sort of goes back to his original sentence in verse 12, in verse 18. So actually, in verse 12, it sort of helps us understand verse 18. So verse 12, he started, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. What he's saying is, it's not that just Adam did something wrong, and then we all copied in the neck. He's saying, the whole world, yes, has been born into the ways of Adam, and we all follow in the ways of Adam. We all sin of our own volition. We're born in Adam and we, we continue to sin in Adam. We perpetuate the sin of Adam. And as the result of that he says, death comes to all. Because all of us. So back to verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Right. Here's the comparison he sets up at the heart of this chapter 5. Just as Adam, this happened, so also in Jesus, this happened. Right? You got that? Except that's only half. He sets it up initially as, I guess, a comparison, or there's a similarity, just as here, so here. But actually, in the rest of this little section, he actually shows not how they're exactly the same, but actually shows the same pattern, but Jesus from over Adam. Jesus superabounds over Adam. Jesus overwhelms the effect of Adam. Yes, they're similar in the pattern, but Jesus so overwhelms the pattern of Adam. How are you going to represent that? I don't know. I'll let that slide. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. Alright. This is the key second point in this section. Jesus abounds over Adam. What Jesus achieves overwhelms what Adam uh, overwhelmed Adam's impact. Now you can see this a few times here in verses 15 to 17. A couple of times he uses the phrase, the gift, by which he means the gift of justification, because that's what he was talking about back in chapter 3 and 4. The gift is not like, is not like 
the trespass or the effect of Adam's sin. And twice he says, how much more will Jesus' act overwhelm Adam's act? So they're similar, but Jesus so much overwhelms Adam. And you can see it here, even on what we've mapped out. Instead of where Adam brought condemnation and death, Jesus brings justification, right, rightness to God. And why? Whereas Adam's sin means at the end of the day we're all sinners because we continue in his sin. Because of Jesus' act, we can be declared righteous. The effects that Jesus has overwhelm the effects that Adam has. In fact, so much so is Jesus the greater one here that actually it's not true that Jesus is like Adam, even though I started by saying that. Actually, Paul's point is that Adam is just a little bit like Jesus, but in a bad way. That's actually his point. So if you look at verse 14, you'll see there towards the end of it, he says, he describes Adam who is a pattern of the one to come. Adam is a type of the one to come. The real head of the human race isn't Adam. The real head of the human race, the head of the human race who leads as God intends, who secures not humanity's condemnation and death, but secures humanity's justification of life, the real head of the human race is not Adam. The real head of the human race is Jesus. Adam was just a shadow, a poor replica. Yes, he, was that he had massive effect for the rest of the humanity to come after him, but he was just a poor replica, a shadow of the true head of the human race. He was just a type of the real thing, the real thing being Jesus. So what Jesus achieves here is a dramatic overthrow of humanity's destructive destiny. Humanity's destructive destiny brought on ourselves by following in the sinful ways of Adam. God has now overturned that in Jesus. The entire history of humanity since Adam has been dominated by sin and death. Are you going to write your history of the world, you know, to make yourself famous or whatever? What's going to be chapter number one in your history of the world? Well, I sort of hope it would be humanity made in the image of God. But once you go past that, what's next? Well, the next thing has to be, as of the human history is just completely dominated by sin and death. Isaiah talks about how death is the shroud that lies over all people. Do you know what a shroud is? It's a sheet you wrap a dead body in. We live our life with a shroud over it. Because that's the end we're going to. That has been the entire history of the human race until Jesus. What does Jesus do about sin's thoughts, about us? He, he astoundingly overturns the entire history and destiny of humanity. Uh, you can see it there, actually, if you flip forward to the end of chapter 6, the very last verse of chapter 6, a very well-known verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that's really well known, but I wonder if you've ever stopped to ponder the significance of that, that verse in the light of the entire Bible. Think of the entire Bible's trajectory, right? Narrative the entire Bible. Think about now, think about that verse. What's it telling you? The wages of sin is death. Well, I know that from Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, they sin. What they get, they get what they deserve, which is death. And then, basically, that is the history of humanity from that point. But now, Paul's announcing, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What was the thing that they were cut off from after they sinned? When God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, 
The one thing that they could not get back to was the tree of life. Because if they ate of the tree of life, God knows that they, they would live forever. The one thing that they were forbidden from having, from enjoying, was eternal life. What's Paul saying in this verse? Now God gives the gift of eternal life to humanity in Jesus. You have access to the tree. You see, this verse is actually a commentary on the entire Bible, from Adam through to the work of Jesus. You have access back to that which you were never able to have access because we continued in the sins of Adam, the way of Adam. Well, this is why, actually, the gospel about Jesus reveals God's righteousness. I've said before in the book of Romans, God's own personal righteousness is a massive thing for Paul in this whole letter. And when we talk about God's righteousness, what we mean is that God really will fulfil all his intentions, his good intentions, to bless his creatures, his creation. That's why God is righteous. He fulfills all his intentions. And you can see it here in this chapter. What does God do in Jesus? It's not that he's just paid the penalty for your sin. He's overturned the whole destiny of humanity. But that we have access back to that which we have not been able to access ever since the Garden of Eden. We now have access to justification and eternal life. That is the big story of what God's doing. That's why the gospel displays God's righteousness, that he will see his good purposes for creation um, realised. Now, uh, when I was a kid, we used to uh, go on family holidays, road trips. I don't know if your family do this sort of thing. And we would go and visit the big things in Australia. You know, not always. That, not, that wasn't normally the purpose. Hey, let's get out of this big thing and visit them. But more was, you know, we would you'd go to the big pineapple. That was a fun afternoon. Um, the big merino. Which they moved. How weird is that? The big marine actually moved it. That's cool. Um, but my favourite was actually the big trout. Anyone been to the big trout? Yes, they have a trout pond. There you go. The big, the big trout was animidity on the way through the snow mountain. Anyway, there you go. The big trout. Um, well, you might not realise this, but in the rest of the world, not, not so in Australia, in the rest of the world, they're really into big Jesus. Jesus. Big Jesus. Now, in Australia, we're so secular, we think that would be bizarre. But you go online and start looking, there's, compet- there's, so there's competition between countries about who can have the biggest Jesus. Uh, and here's one particular candidate. This is a big Jesus. His crown is three metres tall, right? That gives you a sense of the scale. The entire height of the statue is 32 metres and he's built on a 16 metre sort of pedestal, a bank of 16 metres. So the entire height is 52 metres. That's an Olympic sized Jesus. Olympic tool sized Jesus. Now, I want you to think for a moment, how big is your Jesus? That's a big Jesus. But that Jesus is nothing compared to the real Jesus and what he has done for the destiny and prospect of humanity. Only in Jesus is the whole history and destiny of humanity overturned. So instead of condemnation and death, there is justification and eternal life. How big is your Jesus? Well, if you just put him in a little box, a little box that says, a little theological box that says God's forgiveness mechanism. When you need it, you press it. 
He's not fucking standing just trying to tell the guilty. He's overturned the entire destiny of humanity. And that is what we proclaim in the Gospel of Jesus. We don't proclaim just forgiveness of sin. We proclaim life over overwhelmed death. We proclaim God's intention, good intentions for humanity, realized, possible, actualized in Jesus. Well, how did Jesus secure, though, this overturning of everything that came in Adam? How did he secure this new life for us? Well, the answer is through his death and through his resurrection. You need both. Uh, so, I'm moving on to the second point here. Jesus dying to sin sovereignty. I'm still trying to think about how does Jesus, what, is, what does he do, what's the full scope of what he does with respect to sin? And I'm saying here, he dies to sin sovereignty. Let me tell you what I mean. First of all, the thing to note here is that Jesus' death for sin, Jesus' death for sin is actually a death to sin. Jesus' death for sin is a death to sin. That is, what I, what I mean is when Jesus died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world and bearing in himself not just all the world's sin but actually God's full condemnation for all that sin, bearing the full wrath of God in himself by doing that sin's claim on him sin's claim actually on all of humanity was emptied sin's claim on humanity was exhausted, it was thoroughly poured out into just this one person Jesus our representative and substitute and once the full wrath of God has been poured out for sin on Jesus, neither sin nor death has any more claim on him. Right? Because it's not like he dodged the bullet, he took the bullet. And when you've taken the bullet, it's over. So you see here in chapter 6, I'm moving on to, chapter 6 verse 7, Paul says, anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Why is that? Well, if you've died, you've received Sin penalty, you've received death, right? So once you've died, that's it, game over. Sin, you've had your due, right? You've, you've had your bit of flesh. Death has come. The death Jesus died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all. He's been set free from sin, now he's dead to sin once for all. So that's why sin and death had no more hold over Jesus once he's taken the bullet, once he's actually faced it. But in terms of dealing with sin's reign, Jesus' death is only half the solution, his resurrection is the other half. Because Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection to a new life with God. Look again at verse 10, chapter 6. It says there, The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection to a new life, no longer under the claim or the power of sin and death. He fully exhausted their claim in his own death. But in his resurrection, he opens up actually a new reality, a new way of life, of living, with God, beyond the rule of sin and death. So that's what happens to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. But the thing to note here is that Jesus' deliverance from sin and death can become ours. How? By our union to him, our union with him through faith. Still in chapter 60, verses 3 and 4, what does Paul say? Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Talking here about being baptised into Christ Jesus, uh, 
the practice then and also to the practice now is when you become a believer in Jesus, you be baptized. That is not magical, it's just an outward public expression of the inward commitment of faith. I, I, I turn to Jesus Christ and I commit my life to him, well then, the, the way Christians ever right, going right back to Jesus and actually before to John the Baptist, the way people commit uh, themselves or show their commitment to repenting is actually through baptism. Go under the water, like dying, and come back out of the water, like coming back to life. Now, it's not, you don't have to have the water, you don't actually have to go through the baptism, because it's just an outward sign of the inward reality, right? It's not, it's about what's going on internally. Another way of saying it is just becoming a Christian, or putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it's, as that Paul talks about in chapters 3 and 4. He's saying that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. So think about what that means. If, when Jesus died to sin, he took the bullet, he took sin's bullet, he took death, if I'm united to him, that means when he died, then I died too. He's my representative. I'm linked to him by faith. I'm united with him by faith through the Spirit. So that really when he took the bullet, I took the bullet. I mean, he took it for me, but I was there with him. What this means is that because I am in Christ, because I am united to him by faith, through the Spirit, I am now beyond the claim of sin and death. I am now justified. I now have eternal life in Christ Jesus. All of that has now begun. Yes, I will still physically die. Yes, I still struggle with sin. And we'll get to all those things in a moment. But the fundamental transformation has already taken place. As I turn to Christ in faith, then what happened to him happens to me. And all his benefits now come to me. In fact, the key to all of this, actually, the key to all the treasures of Jesus is in union with Christ. It's only because we're united to Christ that we can experience adoption or justification or glorification or sanctification. It all comes through union with Christ. So again, think about when we tend to put Jesus in a box. Think about how you think about Jesus. We do tend to put him over there. He's a sort of this third party somehow between God and us and then Jesus, the one who gets us forgiveness over there, rather than actually seeing that maybe my whole life is bound inextricably to Jesus. The fact that you can live as a Christian today is because you are united to Jesus. The future, the hope that you have as a Christian today, that you will one day see Jesus face to face in it stays because you are united to Jesus. The fact that sin does not have mastery over your life today. That you are not just pushed from sin to sin to sin. That you actually can resist sin in the power of the Spirit. That's because you are united to Jesus. You have died to sin and been raised to a new life that you live with God. It is all because of your genius. Do you see how Jesus has to be right there with you in every aspect of your Christian life. You can't segment him over there and just because he is your life is how the New Testament puts it. You live because you are in him. Well, finally, how do we oh, finish off with this? How do I actually live this out? You're like, what, what, what do I do with all this truth, this theology? Uh, someone wisely once said, theology, unapplied, is heresy. Right? 
you, you, you think all about, you know, I thought deeply about the Trinity, or I thought deeply about all the theology of the Spirit, or if it hasn't shaped your life, it hasn't actually transformed you, it's then heresy. The truth itself, it might still be true, but the truth is meant to transform and change you. And if it hasn't, then you have a heretical understanding of it. So truth is meant to change you, shape you, how to be true to it. Well, Paul drives straight there. Verse 11, the first thing, and this is under the heading of freeing from sin slavery, the first thing is, understand your identity, understand your reality. Verse 11 of chapter 6, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to understand yourself differently if you are a Christian person, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to consider yourself, understand that you are dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. And now you are in this new, new, new type of life. You're, you're alive to God. That is a fundamentally different way of being in the world. How do you then live that out? Well, verses 12 and 13. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law but under grace. Sin is no longer your master, therefore don't live your life like sin is your master. Don't go around offering yourself to sin. Don't go, don't go engaging in sin. Don't go wallowing in sin. Don't go rejoicing in sin, because sin's not your master. You've been set free from that master. In fact, you read on the second half of chapter 6 and it says, it's not that it's not that you've just been set free to roam wherever. What's fundamentally wrong with this picture, according to the second half of Romans chapter 6, is you've been set free from one master, a master who only wanted your death, and you've been redeemed, rescued, bought by a new master who wants to gift you life. We are no longer slaves to sin, in Christ says. We are slaves to God. We are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to obedience. There's a three different ways Paul explains it in the second half of chapter 6. Now, we sort of go, well, hang on, slavery, that's not a good term. And Paul knows the weakness of his analogy of one point. Here in, I think, verse 19, uh, he actually says, look, I'm using a human analogy because of that you know, limitations of your understanding. You try to find a, an illustration that will make some sort of sense in it. So don't push the slavery thing too far. But what he's saying is you've been fundamentally transferred, not just free, but transferred from sin and death mastery to actually the mastery of the Lord Jesus, who only has life to give you. Well, you might say, well, that's great to know that I'm free, that I'm now living this new life of God, but it doesn't feel like it. I know the sins in my own life you know the sins in your own, your life, that you know how they cling so close, don't they? Maybe it's a relationship that's sort of not where it should be. Maybe it's stuff that happens in public. Maybe it's stuff that happens in private. Things that you just find you can't seem to escape. And in Christ Jesus, what sort of advice do, do we get to have? What sort of, how can we think about this? Well, I think uh, two things, two things that say this in Scripture in terms of trying to help us actually live this out. First is this. 
remember the benefit of living for Christ. That's where Paul goes in the second half of the last part of his chapter 6. He says there in verse 20, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Well, you've got to keep remembering yourself that actually the following the way of Adam only leads to condemnation and death. It does not lead to life. It does not lead actually to lasting satisfaction and joy. You need to keep remembering that. Going on with Paul here, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So remember the benefits of actually being in Christ Jesus. Embrace those. Embrace the truth of them. But, but secondly, and Paul's not going to get to this point until chapter 8, know that God is powerfully at work in you so that you can live this life. I'm talking, of course, about the Holy Spirit. The living of the Christian life would be an utter impossibility without God making it possible within us by His Spirit. And what Paul says when he gets to chapter 8 is that you need to walk in the power of the Spirit. You need to live in the power of the Spirit and put to death the old sinful way. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that suddenly like, you, you suddenly will get zapped by the Spirit from on high that will mean sin, those, those sins that fall away. What I'm saying is that God's Spirit works powerfully in and through and with us. As you face temptation, you say, I, I know I get to give in to you day after day. I will not. I will not give in to you now. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk. I'm going to ring somebody. I'm going to do something. And the moment when you do that, you know what? That is the Spirit of God prompting and empowering you to live this life. That is how God's Spirit powerfully works in and through and with us. It's unseen. It's often unfelt. But it's powerfully real. And it doesn't happen to us passively. It requires your cooperation, your action, that He empowers and enables. So, I hope, well, I, I am without doubt that many things may, might have been raised for some of you because I know that for, for all of us, whether we're Christian or not, sin is a real live issue day by day. There is liberation in this truth. But we've got to get it into our heads, get it into our hearts, and we need to actually embrace it and seek to live it in the power of His Spirit. So let's do that.